0: Blissington Falls News Review Now with the OOM is on the air. Hi, welcome to another episode of Blissington Falls News Review Now. I'm Trizzy, and this is
1: Ume, and
0: I love you. Ume. You're so sweet, Ume. Everyone loves you, too.
1: I love everyone and I want to make friends with everyone from all over the world and we can eat ice cream together and have cake and cookies and pizza and watch Stranger Things and Labyrinth. Those are some of your favorite things. Uh Uh-huh. Speaking of Stranger Things, a lot
0: of people seem quite taken with newcomer Robin, played by Maya Hawke. Max the Zoomer was my favorite character in Season 2, but Robin has all my love for Season 3. I seriously enjoyed the entire Scoops troop element. I've always loved kids-save-the-world-type movies. Things like War Games, where Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy prevent the defense computer Whopper from launching thermonuclear war.
1: I don't like that.
0: Even though I guess you could argue they're the ones who started the whole mess by breaking into the defense mainframe with their dial-up modem thingy in the first place. Another great example is 1986's Space Camp, which, while isn't about saving the world, has a lot of genius Dustin and Susie-type kids launched accidentally into space. There's even a kid named Max. Only Space Camp's Max is a 12-year-old boy played by Joaquin Phoenix back when he was known as Leaf. Tom Skerritt plays Zach Bergstrom, the camp director who walked on the moon. And Indiana Jones in the Temple of Dooms, singing, screaming Willie Scott herself, Kate Capshaw plays Andy Bergstrom, an instructor and super-competent astronaut who has yet to go into space. Leah Thompson of Back to the Future and Howard the Duck is Catherine Fairley, who aspires to become the first woman space shuttle commander. There's also Kelly Preston as your ever-popular 80s stereotype, the Valley Girl, who turns out to be a genius with an eidetic memory. Oh, and Tate Donovan, better known as Disney's animated Hercules. He's the arrogant teen boy who learns to be a better, more giving person and team player. They all end up in space for real aboard the Atlantis and grow up in ways you know will help them fulfill their life dreams and whatnot. Space Camp received mixed to negative reviews upon release, which unfortunately also came the same year the actual Challenger exploded after launch, killing all seven astronauts aboard, including Krista McAuliffe, the space teacher. Umay, did you realize Space Camp with Leah Thompson as a teenager came out three years after she made her actual movie debut playing at least a slightly older character in 1983's Jaws 3D? And it also came out the same year she starred in Howard the Duck as would-be rock star and duck aficionado Beverly Switzer? I did not know that.
1: Why do you know these things?
0: I have an eidetic memory. Oh. But it's only for useless stuff like 80s movie trivia. Oh, that's so sad. In 1982, the year of E.T., before Leah Thompson appeared in Jaws 3D, she did a series of TV commercials for Burger King, along with Elizabeth Shue of Karate Kid fame. Together, they also did a holiday-themed commercial with none other than Sarah Michelle Gellar when she was a kid, way before Buffy the Vampire Slayer or even Swan's Crossing.
1: Burger King wishes everyone the happiest of holidays. Have yourself a merry little
2: Christmas, may your
1: days be
2: bright, from now on your troubles will be out of sight, so have yourself a merry little Christmas now. Merry Christmas! Happy New Year! Happy holidays everybody! Ho ho
0: ho! Burger King gets a lot of product placement in Stranger Things 3, almost as much as in King Ralph. There's a Burger King in the Starcourt Mall food court, and Hopper gets out of his stolen Cadillac convertible and puts a big bag of Whoppers and fries in his mouth in a loving close-up that fully displays the 80s BK corporate packaging style.
1: Hamburgers are so delicious. I want a hamburger. Maybe later.
0: Anyway, maybe this is yet another example of the Stranger Things Leah Thompson connection. And you can read all about Howard the Duck and Space Camp in the Leah Thompson edition of the A.V. Club's Random Roles from way back in 2012. Leah Thompson is awesome. I so wanted to be her when I was a kid. She has an amazing filmography. Speaking of the whole Stranger Things scoops troop versus the Soviets under the mall storyline, Leah Thompson is in 1984's Red Dawn, referenced quite often in this season of Stranger Things. I don't
1: know what that is.
0: I don't think you'd like it, Ume, but we can watch it if you want. No, thank you.
1: I want to watch
0: Back to
1: the Future.
0: We'll definitely do that. I believe it's still on Netflix here in Japan. I mean, here in Blissington Falls. Blissington Falls. While we're on the topic of Robin, Erica, Dustin, and Steve Harrington, our Scoops Troop
1: faves. And Susie. And Susie, of course, Ume. She wears glasses like you. That's true.
0: But I have no idea what Planck's constant would be. Although I do love never-ending story. Anyway, what I was going to say is we both love ice cream, and Robin and Steve work at an ice cream shop. So how about we take a look at the great ice cream shop war of 1985? No, thank you. Um, uh, Sorry, we have to do this anyway. Okay. Take it away, Trizzy. Thanks, me. Let's talk 1985 ice cream. Steve Harrington and his fabulous hair work at the Starcourt Mall's Scoops Ahoy, a nautical-themed ice cream shop. In the run-up to Stranger Things Season 3, real-life ice cream retailer Baskin Robbins ran a Scoops Ahoy Stranger Things tie-in promotion where they transformed one of their shops in Burbank, California into a Scoops Ahoy for 12 days. Ice cream, please. I thought you wanted a hamburger.
1: I want an ice cream hamburger.
0: Don't think they make those, Ume.
1: Then I want a hamburger and some ice cream. Later, okay? People listening can't get ice cream to
0: you in time before it melts all away. Oh. We'll go get some later. Promise.
1: Okay. And a hamburger. As
0: we learned early in the first episode, a single scoop at Scoops Ahoy that summer apparently costs $1.25. But you promise we'll get ice cream? Yes, Ume, I promise. Ice cream. Hamburger. Let me finish the segment. And we'll go get a hamburger and ice cream. Let me finish the show and we'll go for some ice cream. Okay. Is $1.25 a realistic price for a single scoop of ice cream in 1985? Using an online inflation calculator, that's around $2.98 in today's money. Now, let's check the reverse. With Baskin-Robbins as our comparison, Yummy. we see a single scoop in 2019 cost about $2.79. Hmm. In 1985, that would have been a $1.17 in Harrington bucks. Wow. In 2018, when they shot this season, the adjusted-for-inflation 1985 price was $1.20. Oh. So a $1.25 seems somewhat in the ballpark if this is how the Duffer brothers got their price for the script but really, we'd need to check out a Baskin-Robbins menu from 1985 or so to get the real scoop. Oh, no. What were ice cream shops actually charging in the mid-'80s? An August 20th, 1985 New York Times article on the openings of Haagen-Dazs shops in Harajuku and Aoyama, Tokyo, Japan, cites a minimum price of 76 cents for a single scoop cone. Here's a snippet from the story. While Häagen-Dazs is aimed at the affluent, it is priced for all. A single scoop cone at 76 cents is less expensive than the dollar plus price that the ice cream generally commands in the United States. In addition, while other luxury ice creams usually sell at 4.26 a pint, Mr. Yamamoto said Häagen-Dazs is priced at 3.40. Mr. Yamamoto is Tamio Yamamoto, who was manager of the Japanese Hagendas outlets, by the way. Isn't history awesome, Ume? And ice cream is yum. It is. And that $1 plus price means the Duffers aren't far off the mark, are they? Rocky Road is my favorite. Ooh, I love that. I love you too, Ume. (laughs) So, that year was coincidentally or not, kind of an epochal moment in ice cream retailing. How lucky for the Duffers, or how well-researched. Baskin-Robbins celebrated its 40th anniversary in 1985 with the introduction of the Oreo cookies and cream flavor. While pop culture news and the like online have touted the new Coke connection in the new Stranger Things, the Cola Wars weren't the only brand-name conflicts raging during the 80s. At almost the same time, Steve and Robin, who is a super cool new character, by the way, were scooping strawberry at Scoops Ahoy, Major players were snapping up smaller shops and upscale ice cream brands were wreaking havoc in the market. According to a Chicago Tribune newspaper article from April 10th that year, Pillsbury Company had bought out Haagen-Dazs in 1984, then Dart & Craft purchased Fruisinglager in Foods? 1985, and industry giant Baskin Robbins responded Ooh. by hooking up with Coca-Cola. Oh, And that February, they also filed suit against Haagen-Dazs to stop what the story refers to as alleged infringement of Baskin-Robbins' top-selling pralines and cream. Haagen-Dazs sold their own version that year. The story goes on to quote then-Baskin-Robbins company president Robert Marley is saying, The ice cream industry watches us, so they pick off the successful flavors. When we see one of our trademark names being used, we send out cease and desist letters. The franchise owners depend on us to defend these names. In detailing this tumultuous time and frosty treats, the article goes on to tell how Baskin-Robbins also spent an estimated $20 million in 1985 money $47,600,743.49 $47,600,743.49 adjusted for inflation today to swank up their decor Swanky. and attract the au courant young urban professional with Eppy. their discriminating frozen treat palette. Gone were the familiar pinks and whites and in were the earth tones so beloved of spendy trendy people tooling around in DeLoreans and BMWs during the heyday of the master of the universe, Corporate Raider. He-Man. You know, the immoral buy-it-all, gut-it-all, sell-it-all, piece-by-piece celebrity power investor personified by real-life Ivan Boski, then satirized as Gordon Gekko in the 1987 Oliver Stone flick Wall Street, and later lampooned as Daniel Clamp, along with another guy, in 1990's Gremlins 2. Bosky would wind up in jail, of in course, jail. and all that conspicuous consumption go-go 80s nonsense kind of went boom on Black mm-hmm. Monday, October 19th, mm-hmm. 1987, with the worldwide mm-hmm. stock market crash. Mm-hmm. So, okay, mm-hmm. we've seen how Scoops Ahoy is more expensive than luxurious Haagen-Dazs was back then, but what about Baskin Robbins, darn it? Don't say bad words. I'm sorry. Cover your ears, darling. How much would Max and Eleven pay for a single scoop of Baskin-Robbins in the summer of 1985 during a there's more to life than stupid boys trip to the mall? Sorry, I found all of this incredible background material but couldn't locate a 1980s vintage Baskin-Robbins menu. Just someone's photograph of a list of their 31 flavors from 1985. 31. May's flavor of the month was Mississippi Mud, by Mississippi. the way so the world may never know the truth. Unless we get Doc Brown to finish up that time machine and we go ask them. Back to the future. And what of Haagen-Dazs and its new shops in Tokyo that year? What? The Times article ends by quoting two people in the know. One is Memoru Kato, executive managing director of the Japan Ice Cream Association, who maintained ice cream had become a prop for young people's performance on the streets Mm. in Harajuku, Aoyama and Rapungi. never been there fashion spots of the day in other words and that they did this to parade around showing off show off 16-year-old Makiko Kunita shared a different take the article describes her as standing demurely in place as she ate her ice cream cone Yummy. then quotes her as saying my mother always told me that it was bad manners to eat and walk at the same time. It is. Hagen-Dazs is sold in various forms and flavors in convenience stores all across Japan, even now. And Baskin-Robbins, commonly referred to simply as 31, has stores throughout the country as well, offering seasonal flavors and selling scoops even inside Universal Studios Japan itself. So maybe the price is beside the point. Maybe the deliciousness is the real attraction. Ice cream hamburger time? Almost. And now back to our studios for the rest of the show. Here's Trizzy with some comic book reviews.
2: Let's review some comics because what else can we review? Let's review some comics because what else can we review? <laughs>
0: Thanks again, me. You are so beautiful and smart. Way back in 1994, Viz Comics published a line of books called Sunrise Animation Film Comics. These were similar to those old photo novels. Remember photo novels? If you don't, photo novels were comic-style adaptations of movies like Grease and The Jerk, and TV shows like Star Trek. Viz's Sunrise Animation Film Comics adapted Dirty Pair along with other Sunrise titles. The comics use actual frame grabs from Dirty Pair TV episodes to create one-volume adaptations. Dirty Pair 1 is their take on the show's debut episode, To Kill a Computer, which originally aired on Nippon TV on July 15, 1985. The film comic is American comic book-sized with a glossy, heavy stock cover, and everything inside is in full color. The images are crystal clear, so it's actually very beautiful. Animation, even more so than live action, lends itself to this format. Can you imagine how difficult it would have been for any artist to recreate all these dirty pair scenes and backdrops so fatefully? But a lot of pixelated artifacts and blurry images the way you would get from a live action movie would have ruined the effect of reading a real comic. It's also a fateful rendition, with dialogue matched to the translated version of the show, and the balloons are very well placed. The inside covers give you a lot of background information on Kay and Yuri, their timeline, the Triple W-A, that's the World's Wide Welfare Association, their boss Ghoulie, Moogie, the lovely angel spaceship, and even minor characters like the Hunk, who appears only briefly in the episode when he brushes against Yuri and she flirts with him. This is as close to a manga version of the original 1985 Dirty Pair as we're ever likely to get, mainly because it actually is the original 1985 Dirty Pair. The English adaptation is by Fred Burke and Toshifumi Yoshida, lettered by Bill Spicer and edited by Trish Lido. I'm not sure who did the page layouts or chose the specific scenes to use for each individual panel, but it flows like your regular old traditionally drawn comic. They didn't just use one panel size throughout, so it's very readable and well-paced. Although it really could have used two extra pages. In the episode, the dirty pair have to fight Brian, a master computer that controls their huge high-rise apartment building and apparently the entire city in which they live. Poor Brian found a fail-safe device attached to its CPU, and it's angry at humanity and out for revenge. In typical Dirty Pair fashion, Kay and Yuri destroy a lot of property in their struggle, and their solution is not very elegant. They bully a space worker into warping an entire junked starship into Brian's brain center. Success, but at massive cost. Only the way this happens really could have used a large splash page showing the starship inside Brian. I think there's even a scene from the episode that would have worked. The same goes for the moment when their apartment building gets permanently tilted. Otherwise, it's a little difficult to tell what's happening in these moments. I'm going to assume Viz had a strict page count on these, and the design team did the best they could within those limits. Which is still pretty fun and readable. All in all, it's a very nice package that not only gives me the true Dirty Pair 1985 vibes I crave, but also reminds me of those old back issues of 2000 A.D., the added background info provides depth and reminds me of some of those tharg interjections. These are an absolute must for fans of the original Dirty Pair, and they're not too hard to source secondhand from Amazon.com or eBay. I'm sure you can find them for sale somewhere online. I bought mine from a seller on eBay, and it's in brand new condition and looks as fresh and shiny as the day it was printed. And we're talking about a 25 year old comic adaptation of a television anime that's now 35 years old this month. Happy birthday, Kay and Yuri. Oh, yeah, and speaking of birthdays, if you're wondering, the comic tells us both are 19 years old. Yuri is the younger of the two, born March 18th, 2122, on the planet Kocha. Kay was born November 27th, 2121, on the planet Niyogi. I can tell you how tall both are, and how much they weigh, but the supremely vital information about their blood types is sadly missing. Egregious oversight, Viz. And now back to you, Ume, and Trizzy. Whoa, not so fast, me. Here's another review. What? Another review? Well, okay. Here's a fun, jazzy new comic you might like. Or you might even fall in love with it, especially if you're into positive, powerful messages and pop art and pop culture. Pink Lemonade is a mysterious young woman with a naive outlook, a scarred forehead, and no memory of who she is or where she came from. But along with those amazing advantages... She also has a huge round helmet with a face painted on it and a pink and yellow mini bike to go with her pink and yellow cycling outfit. It starts with a dream and it ends with, and if you want to know that, you should read Pink Lemonade No. 1 by Nick Cagnetti, coming this October from It's Alive. If you're a big fan of things like Mike and Laura Allred's Madman or Atomic's comic series or Rick Tomaso's Spy Seal, or the works of Trina Robbins, then Pink Lemonade is right in your zone. For me, this book comes from nowhere, practically out of the ether, but according to the press release that goes with it, Nick Cagnetti has been making Pink Lemonade comic strips and short stories since 2016, which seems fitting because while Pink Lemonade herself isn't sure where she comes from, the way the story starts in mid-dream and then scurries about in a kind of free-form, almost stream-of-consciousness way, it's obvious Cagnetti has been living in her world for quite some time and is super eager to take us there. There's a whole bit about a famous cartoon character called OJ-Bot, a robot who helps people and spreads vitamin C goodness wherever it goes. The inside cover is a fake ad. In a late 70s or maybe early 80s style for OJ Bot's OJ Bites an orange juice pretzel. Inside, Pink Lemonade befriends a young girl named Pammy and her cartoonist mom, Linda, who take her into their home, feed her mac and cheese, and introduce her to the whole world of OJ Bot animation and souvenir merchandise. From there, Pink Lemonade heads out on her beloved bike to discover the world and help people OJ-Bot style, only to find herself in deep trouble. So while it's loopy and goofy fun, Cagnetti has something on his mind from the way OJ-Bot devolves from a fun, friendly icon into a dark, cynical failure, to the angry movie star with a mullet who goes by the very on-the-nose name of Ron Radical. It's all told in an engaging style very reminiscent of Mike Allred's art with vibrant, flat colors and heavy line-screen gradients in the backgrounds. It's very warm and inviting, like a 70s Saturday adventure cartoon you probably watched when you were a kid, but your memories got jumbled, or maybe you only dreamed it. Check out the Indiegogo campaign as well. It ends in just a few days, and it really deserves a full funding. I'm pretty stoked to see what happens to pink lemonade next, and you will be too. And now it's time for entertainment news. Let's go,
2: Trizzy. Let's go.
0: Toss one huge bit of news at you because we're still basking in that Stranger Things 3 afterglow and it just took on a little extra shine. Deadline reports Paper Girls is coming to the Amazon streaming service. That's right, Paper Girls is going to be a TV show. Paper Girls, the Brian K. Vaughn and Cliff Chang graphic novel about four paper girls lost in time following a bizarre encounter with dinosaurs and future people on one very weird November 1st, 1988, post-Halloween morning, just received a series commitment from Amazon Studios. Toy Story 4 co-writer Stephanie Folsom scripts and will executive produce with Vaughn and Plan B. Mrs. Folsom's first project under a multi-year deal she signed with Legendary Entertainment. Wow, I am super happy. I love Paper Girls. Aaron, Tiffany, KG, and Mackenzie are coming to television life. Oh gosh, imagine finding yourself hurdled from the Apple IIc, Macintosh Plus, Macintosh SE era into the world of iPhones and beyond. Imagine finding out you haven't lived up to your expectations. Imagine finding out you grew up into a goth. Imagine finding out you aren't going to grow up at all. I remember practically begging my parents to let me deliver newspapers when I was a kid. Anyway, the first issue especially evokes the same kind of nostalgia Stranger Things does, but also this other peculiar feeling that I kind of miss from when I was a kid, that post-Halloween melancholy you know the next morning when you have to go to school because halloween was on a school night your costume is lying on the bedroom floor the neighbors houses are still decorated and there are maybe even a few bazooka bubblegum or mini snickers bar wrappers fluttering forlornly in the gutter as you trudge up the street to the bus stop Halloween was a Monday in 1988, which means Aaron and the other paper girls start their frenetic time-hopping in the wee early hours of a Tuesday. Before they even start dodging future warriors, they have to face up to older kids who haven't even gone home after a night of vandalism and trick-or-treating. After that, they're struggling to keep up with all the timeline changes and this entire war that seems to be happening on the fringes of reality itself. Oh, and humongous tardigrades and mysteries etched on field hockey sticks also play a role. And if you meet your future self or even your kid self from the past, how can you alter or change your fate? And what if you learn there's nothing you meet during your time trip that will kill you because you're going to die a few years later from a more commonplace disease but still way before you even reach adulthood? Are our fates written in time as on stone or are they more ephemeral and mutable? Paper Girls is a smart, exciting, emotional, and sometimes confusing science fiction saga with an epic scope, but mainly a winning cast of characters who bond and become friends, and I am way stoked to watch a TV series version. And now, back to you, Triz and Ume.
1: This is Ume, and this is a word from our first sponsor. Yay!
2: It's he, the excitement, the adventure of ice cream. For breakfast? Hey, we'll call them steve No way, you Steve Crunchingtons. God, you suck. Turn around, look at what you see. In your bowl, the mirror of your dreams. It's new Scoop Stroop cereal from Bella. Two ice cream scoop rings honey oats fused together for two crunches. Every Scooby-O with Marshmallow Steams, Robins, Dustins, Erica's, and Susie's. You can't spell part of your delicious breakfast without Scoop Stroop Cereal. Scoop, 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 Scoop. Cereal! Now to your never-ending breakfast. Now you can experience the taste of Kellogg's Scoop Stroop Cereal. A crunchy deep saving breakfast for the free world. Eat another bowl of Scoop Stroop Cereal. can listen and limited time only, look for a pair of mini spy binoculars and specially marked box. Yay!
0: Oh wow, I can't wait to eat a delicious bowl of scoop strip cereal. And now here's Little Trizzy. With a toy review.
2: Stop calling me little. Babies are little. I'm almost 11 years old, so I'm not a baby. People in the future are really lucky. Like, they have all these new Star Wars movies and comics. And whole new stories and characters and stuff. When Return of the Jedi left theaters, I cried. Do not tell anyone that. And then we got the droids cartoon, which I really liked, and that Ewoks one, plus the Ewoks movies. But mostly you just had to read Marvel Star Wars and watch the movies on VHS or something. The Marvel Star Wars of my time has, like, space pirates like Jolly, who is really cool and angry a lot, and I kind of want to be her. That is also a secret, so do not tell anyone, please. But new Marvel Star Wars has Dr. Aphra, and now they have this big Dr. Aphra figure that is, like, Way too gigantic to fit in with my other Star Wars figures. They're really small. Dr. Aphra is from this whole story where she's like this kind of bad person who wants to make money. I have a small Dr. Aphra, too, who can fit in my Millennium Falcon and hang out with like Han and Luke and Leia and Chewbacca and Lando and C-3PO and R2-D2 and everyone. But like I said, this one is too big for that. But she looks really cool. She looks a lot like the comic book person and she has this hat with goggles that comes off and I think her orange vest and belt can come off too, but I'm not going to try because they might break instead and that would really suck. If you look really close too, she's got this little half-smile expression on her face. My other Star Wars figures, the small ones, they just kind of stare at you. She can move a lot more than my old Star Wars figures their heads turn and their arms go up and down and they can sit or stand but they can't bend their knees. Dr. Afra has this weird knee that does all kinds of things. I like her a lot and Big Trizzy lets me read her comic and it's really fun too so if you like that you're probably going to want this figure. The only bad things are like well her gun which looks like Han Solo's is really soft and it kind of bent when I tried to put it in her holster so be careful Also, her right foot doesn't go up and down, and it feels like if you try, you'll just break it. The joint part's really small and soft, so she can't stand very well unless you, like, try really hard. That's so annoying, God. And the last thing is, some of her paint on her glove came off when we were taking her out of the package. I can't really play with her all that much because she's just like this one big figure and I don't have, like, the droid she hangs out with or any other figures her size. Trizzy has these super expensive Japanese Star Wars figures she won't let me take out of the boxes, but Dr. Aphra is the same size and she looks like she would fit in with them really well. People in the future are so lucky. I wish I could stay in the future forever. I wish I could hang out with Dr. Aphra.
0: Oh my, this has been Blissington Falls News Review Now for July 16th, 2019. I'm Three CPO, human-cyborg relations protocol droid, signing off for Trizzy and Ume. Please try to have a
2: pleasant tomorrow. Oh my.